interesting thing about, um, you know, the birth of Jesus. There was just so much concerning the exact timing. We know that uh, Galatians 4 says, In the fullness of time God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So everything was in place. And on a particular day, there was a man of a priestly family, his wife also, Elizabeth. And uh, he was chosen by Lot. And you know, there's no coincidences in God. They cast the lot, and the lot fell to Zechariah. And uh, he was then chosen to go in and present the incense um, in the temple. And that was around about 9 o'clock in the morning. It was two daily sacrifices, 9 in the morning, 3 in the afternoon. And it represented the prayers and worship. And Jesus was crucified and died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, fulfilling the evening sacrifice was the time that Elijah called down the fire from heaven at the time of the evening sacrifice. So everything was meticulously perfect. Everything that God set up was completely, completely fulfilled. So when Jesus said it was finished, it was a loaded statement. And so all was complete, all was fulfilled, everything was done. And so Zechariah goes in and uh, he goes in to offer the incense and he takes a very long time because the angel Gabriel meets with him. And, you know, it's really incredible how everything in the Bible is significant. The Holy Spirit inspired those men to write the Bible, and they wrote things down. And so Gabriel appeared to Daniel, um, gave him, you know, interpretations of visions, gave him messages from the Lord concerning the prophetic word in answer to the prayers of Daniel. And Gabriel doesn't appear again until this day. Doesn't appear again. He's not seen. He's not mentioned. And on this day, unexpectedly, Gabriel pitches up. Now, again, the Holy Spirit inspires everything, and God is in control. So when Gabriel appeared to Zechariah, what God was saying, this is the beginning of the fulfillment that I spoke to Daniel. So it's just absolutely powerful. And um, Gabriel then begins to tell him that in their old age, though they were not able to have children up until now, the angel says that his wife was to become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they were to name him John. Now, that was also out of character because normally it would be Zechariah or one of the family names. And because of Zechariah's unbelief, the angel says, well, you're not going to be able to speak for a while until all these things come to pass. So when he comes out, of course, the people are like, you know, like, why did you take so long? And he's trying to signal to them you know, that something had happened. And of course, the people immediately assumed that he had a vision or an encounter with God. It's very interesting that one of the things that is said about John, that he would come in another particular gospel, that he would come in other places in the Bible, he'd come in the spirit and the power of Elijah and go before the Messiah as the forerunner fulfilling Isaiah, that he would prepare a people, make them ready for the coming of the Lord, that he would be a voice in the wilderness saying, get ready, bring high places down, low places up. And so John was really powerful. And so he was to be brought up in the Nazaretic vows. And so this is what the angel said, and many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. So this is Luke chapter 1, verse 16. And he shall go before, and here it says it as well, in the spirit and the power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
This thing about turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. This whole ministry is built on this verse in Malachi because this was prophesied by Malachi. And basically what they do is they minister to fathers and sons and get their hearts turned towards each other from that verse. I just want you to know that the ministry is great and it's very necessary, but they're misinterpreting that verse. So here is what the angel was saying, is that the fathers, notably the fathers, the patriarchs, going all the way back to Abraham, had an expectation of the Messiah coming. And all of the fathers, the prophets, would talk about the Messiah coming, but Israel had become increasingly disobedient and increasingly tied up in all kinds of wrong doctrine. That's why it's called the false prophet in the book of Revelation. But now, John the Baptist would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he would turn the children, the nation of Israel, back to the faith of the fathers who expected the Messiah. Because they were expectant, and they were disobedient to turn them back to the obedience of the patriarchs, who stepped out in faith like Abraham to do what God had called them to do. And they were looking for a city, the Bible says, with foundations, whose architect and builder was God. Does that make more sense now? Amen. And so, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so, it continues. Elizabeth falls pregnant. The angel Gabriel then goes to Mary, tells her she's going to fall pregnant. Give him the name Jesus. It will be great. He'll be powerful. And, uh, you know, in verse 31, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, Savior. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord shall give him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Isn't that awesome? And so it's very much what Daniel saw with the statue and the stone cut out not by human hands, striking the feet of the statue. In the days of those kings, the kingdom of God will be set up. So this was it, and here was the king. It's amazing. So Pilate is interviewing Jesus in uh, John chapter 18. And he says, tell us now, are you the king? And he said, you said so. (laughs) Jesus had a way of irritating the religious, hey? And he said, well, you've said so. And he said, for this reason I came, and for this purpose I was born. And he says, to bear witness to the truth. And so he came for a reason, and he came for a purpose. And ultimately, in in Jesus' own words, he said, I came to bear witness to the truth. When finally they came to naming Zechariah and Elizabeth's son, everybody was expecting them to name him Zechariah. So because Zechariah was not able to speak, they asked Elizabeth. Elizabeth said, you to call him John. They were going like, no, 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 let's speak to the dad. So he motioned to them, bring a writing tablet, and he wrote, call him John. And that instant, his mouth was open. And so this is where I want to pick it up and just talk us through in a couple of minutes. And that is in verse 67. And instantaneously, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Ghost and starts to prophesy. Now, he doesn't only prophesy about John. He prophesies about Jesus. There was many prophecies around this time. Simeon, Hannah, Mary, in her Magnificat, just a few verses before, also prophesied. But listen to 
what Zechariah says. Now, speaking by the Holy Spirit, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. Amen. So powerful. Jesus said a little bit later on in his ministry, right towards the end before he was crucified, he said to Israel, So often I've wept over you, and I'd long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. He says, but you would not. You did not recognize the day of your visitation. Psalm 8 says, you know, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that thou visitest him? And so this was a visitation of God. He came to visit. And uh, the visit brought us redemption. So powerful. And, um, you know, the redemption that is ours is that we've been redeemed. We were purchased with a price because all of mankind, humanity was in deep trouble, <laughs> happily heading for hell or unhappily heading for hell until Jesus came. And so he came and redeemed his people. And verse 69, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, fulfilling all the prophetic words about David, the promise to David that you will never cease to have a son sitting on the throne. So Jesus, when he came, was called the son of David. Even on the triumphal entry, Hosanna to the son of David. And a horn of salvation talks about strength. So God was able, by sending Jesus, Jesus is the horn, horn the symbol of strength. He was strong enough, powerful enough to save us and to redeem us. It's very interesting that we were captive and captivated. It's, um, if you go and speak to any person out in the world, the vast majority of them would say they're free, they're free agents, they're free to make decisions, that they're not slaves. But the Bible makes it very plain that they have a God over them. And it's the God of this world. And not only do they have a God over them, but they are enslaved to it, to that God, which is a no God. And they are enslaved by their passions and desires. So they are not free. They don't make free decisions. They are influenced. And we also, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, we were also under that same spirit. The spirit of disobedience, the, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. You know, the airspace that we live in. And uh, the Bible tells us that we followed its passions and desires and its thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. And that would have been the wrath of God. But then he saved us. Amen. But God who is rich in mercy, saved us, redeemed us. And how did he do it? By his powerful right arm, that right arm of God, the working of which is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It raised us and seated us in the heavenly realms. So then amazing how he extracted us from the dominion, the kingdom of darkness. It was a power extraction. So the horn of our salvation delivered us into the kingdom of light. And so there's so much we could say. And so we become the household of David. We become, you know, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. We become Zion. And that's brilliant. And then verse 70 says, As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. Men speaking, moved by the Holy Spirit, searching, you know, the time of the Messiah, the sufferings, and the grace that would be revealed according to 1 Peter chapter 1. And the prophets revealed that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. And of course, that gave the Jews a very sort of political view of salvation, the ministry of Jesus. That's why they got it all wrong. 
They thought he was going to come, come riding in on a horse with an army, maybe raise them up. He was going to chase out the Romans, their oppressors, and completely deliver them. And that's why in John chapter 6, when he did the miracle of the breaking of bread and gave them the bread, of course, somebody else fed with bread, and that was Moses. And so they were going like, wow, this is really awesome. He's the king. And then the Bible says in John chapter 6 that they try to make him king by force. But Jesus withdrew, knowing full well that this is not the way his kingdom was going to come. It was not going to be a political order. And he was not going to come and release them from the oppression of the Romans. That was a course of history, but he was going to release them from a very different, more deadly oppression. And that was sin and death, and from those that hate us. And so we have, the Bible says, an enemy of our souls that absolutely hates us. You know, I don't know if you discovered that when you got born again, maybe you discovered some of that hatred from the enemy of your souls. You certainly discovered some of his lying. You know, two days after you were born again, he kept telling you that you've imagined it, this is not true, you know, it's, it's all fanciful and things like this. Maybe when you spoke in tongues for the first time, as you heard yourself speaking in tongues, speaking in the Holy Spirit, I mean, he was right there saying, this is all gibberish, it's rubbish, you're making this up, making a fool of yourself, what are you doing, shut up, be quiet. And just in subtle ways, there's a hatred of the enemy against us as Christians. And of course, corporately, we look at it and we see how through the centuries from the birth of Christ, how the Christian church has been massively persecuted because there is an enemy who absolutely hates us. But he's delivered us, amen? amen. And he's released us by his powerful hand. Amen. Now listen to verse 72. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. I really enjoyed this when I was studying it. It says to perform the mercy promised to our fathers. The mercy. So when Jesus came, he was showing mercy to the fathers of Israel, to the patriarchs. Now, how was he showing them mercy? How was he showing them mercy? Because as far as I can understand that they were all in the cloud of witnesses, they were with the Lord. Amen? So how was the birth of Jesus, God showing mercy to the fathers? Well, it's quite special. Showing mercy to the fathers was revealed in blessing the children. When you bless Children, you're showing mercy to the fathers. And so God had promised notably to Abraham, Genesis 22, from verse 16, 17, 18, I think it is, Genesis 22. God promised Abraham because he was about to sacrifice his son Isaac, and it became such a, um, a symbol of what God the Father was going to do. Genesis 22. And God said, because you did this, he said, in blessing, I will bless thee. And in multiplying, I will multiply thee, verse 17. And I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. In other words, innumerable. And of course, those of Asaph, you know that God was promising Abram two seed lines. One spiritual, one natural through Ishmael. Isn't that right? One the stars of heaven, one the sand of the seashore. And it says, and thy seed, particularly the spiritual seed, shall possess the gate of his enemy. Isn't that awesome? What a blessing. And so just, just in the fulfillment of that promise, let's look at verse 18. Let's see what it says. And in thy seed 
shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now, this is what Paul was referring to in Galatians chapter 3. Not seeds plural, seeds singular. But he ends the chapter saying, but if we are in Christ, then we are also the seed of Abraham in Christ. And what does the fulfillment look like? All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because of that seed. But listen, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because of this seed, which is in Christ Jesus. Amen. And in blessing the children, he showed mercy to the fathers and said, I remembered the promise, the covenant I made to the fathers. Not only to Abraham, but to Isaac as well, to Jacob as well. He repeated those to all of the patriarchs. And so he remembered his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant us that we, being delivered out of the hand of enemy, might serve him without fear. There's one thing about the Christian faith is that it's a faith of no fear. <laughs> so just in the words, we are of the faith. Faith is an immediate contradistinction to fear. And one of the things concerning even the Jews serving the Lord with the law, that there was a fear. There was a fear that if you broke one, you broke all. There was a constant fear. And there was a fear of death because it was a different enemy at that stage. But Paul makes it plain, and the whole of the New Testament makes it plain when writing to the Hebrews that he has delivered us from him that had the power of fear and, and death over us. And so for us, even death is not something to be feared, and neither is there fear in serving God because there is redemption and complete forgiveness. Amen? So it says, without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. Something that the Jews could never accomplish. Something that they could never do. Something they could never claim about themselves. But wow, you know, with us, it says it in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. And because we are the righteousness of God in Christ, it is possible for us to live a holy life. And uh, even if we haven't reached there, yet, even though there are some imperfections, though we stumble and fail, we can still progress and still serve Him without fear. Because Paul tells us God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and a sound in control mind, the threefold answer to the spirit of fear. And so we can serve Him in righteousness and holiness all the days of our lives without fear. And then he said concerning John, Thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. And what he was going to do was to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Listen, you can only, there's a little bit of a danger with a lot of the grace teaching that's going on now. And the danger is this, is that they preach grace to a degree whereby people automatically have entered the grace of God. In other words, everybody's in the grace of God. Now, you can go and have a look, and you can just do a search. It says, to him that believes. If a person hasn't believed, the believing process is a process of repentance. Is that okay? It's a metanoia. It's a change of mind, believing in the salvation 
work of Jesus. They preach grace so hard and so strong that it is almost a removal of repentance. It almost eradicates the need for people to get to a place where they say, I'm sorry for my sin. I turn to you and I change my mind and I, I receive the gift that Christ is. So just go to him that believes, to him that believes. So you just got to look at John chapter 1. It's the only verse that I mentioned, John chapter 1 verse 12. It says, you know, preceding, it says, he came into the world, though the world was made by him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own, verse 11, his own received him not, verse 12. But as many as received him. So not everyone received him. To as many as received him. To them gave he power to become the sons of God. To them that believed on his name. Is that okay? So there is a belief that has to take place. We don't automatically, otherwise we can stop preaching because everybody's in grace. Is that right? And so the reason why we keep preaching is so that people can believe and receive by changing their minds, metanoia, by repentance and saying, I receive the gift of the Lord. Right? To give knowledge of salvation and his people by the remission of sins through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. There's another one where he visits us. Amen. So it's because of the tenderness of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But here he refers to it as the tender mercy of God because we couldn't save ourselves. Whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. This is King James language for the bright and morning star or the dawning of the day. So Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for thy light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. So the visitation that came was the son of righteousness, Malachi tells us. And he is the rising sun growing ever brighter in our world and upon our lives. To give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Isaiah prophesied that in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. He says, those sitting in darkness, those walking in darkness, they've seen a great light. A light has dawned upon them. And um, Matthew quotes it in Matthew chapter 4, I believe. And so the light of God came into the world through the birth of Jesus. And that light was to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, the same God who in the creation account said, let there be light. And the light shone. The backdrop was darkness. And out of darkness, light shone forth. And Paul tells us that creation existed and that happened in a natural creation to show us what happens in the new creation. And so the same God who is surrounded by darkness, that's the backdrop. He lives another sense in unapproachable light, but he's in darkness, shone his light into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Amen? And so he came. It's really interesting that Luke's gospel is writing to Theophilus, somebody that he's giving an account to of the birth of Jesus and, and the life of Jesus. It says about John, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the desert until the day of his showing unto Israel. There was a day that he was revealed. It's interesting also that he was the cousin of Jesus, 
They spend much time together, him and Jesus. And so, isn't it amazing that in John, I think it's John chapter 3, I'm not sure, when the time for Jesus came to be revealed, he came walking and John said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It's very interesting that John said, I knew him not. But he did know him. His cousin. But he didn't know him as the Christ. Because God said, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. So when he was coming, he saw the Spirit descend and, and remain on him. He said, that cousin I didn't know. It was time for his revealing. Amen. This Christ, the world doesn't know. But there is coming an outpouring of the Spirit when the world will go, but I, I, I didn't know you. Not like this, I didn't know you. Full of the Holy Ghost. That's the power of our salvation. And so what I was going to say, it's interesting that in John chapter 1, in some of the earlier verses, it talks about Jesus as well as John saying, and he grew in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and with man. And so that's why he was the rising sun. Peter says, and I'll close, we will do well to pay attention to all those prophetic words, all those. The prophetic word is made more certain by the birth, the death, the life of Jesus. It's confirmed. And he says, we need to pay attention to it like a light shining in the darkness, growing ever brighter, until the day star, the morning star rises in our hearts. And we are conformed to his image. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. So that's what Christmas is all about. And um, in Numbers chapter 6, 24, part of the role of the priests, and um, this is what I want to do this morning. But in Numbers 26, when they were finished the sacrifices... When the blood had been spilled, the lamb had been slain, the burnt offering had been done, the guilt offering, the sin offering had been sacrificed. When it was all done and the, the sins of the people had been expiated, had been covered, the priests were to come out, Aaron and his sons, and they were to stand towards the children of Israel and to raise their hands and to speak God's blessing over them. And the King James translation says it so nicely because it says, The Lord. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And this is what God says. When you priests pronounce the blessing, I'm going to do something. This is the power of blessing. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. So when they pronounced the Lord, he says, the priests are putting my name upon them, then I will bless them. Is that okay? So in the process of putting his name, because the name identifies the person, therefore it is the nature and character of God. And so through the song, the blessing is spoken over you. God is putting his nature, his character upon you, or the, the singers and myself are. And then God says, okay, that's what you've done. Now let me do my part. I will bless them. Amen. Amen. Amen.
Yeah. 